Hey, Crossroads peeps, glad that you're here with us. This is Kenny, and we are getting into a new series. Uh, we're actually officially kicking off our 2019. Uh, God's finally released me and been able to say what this is about, and it simply revolves around the number five. Uh, five has become a very important number in my life personally. There's a lot of stuff that goes into it, and throughout this year, our study is going to be based around things with five, whether it's a number, whether it's just an idea. And tonight's study uh, is called Take the Steps, our first five that we're going to be looking at. Of course, tonight starts with the five-letter word, steps. And we watched a video by New Kids on the Block, because that's my wife's favorite group, and I didn't get her a Valentine's present. Well, we're saving money. But anyway, uh, we did the video step-by-step and talked about them, because step-by-step is so important, because there's not a golden elevator that takes us to the level of success that we desire. It's something we've got to work for. And so tonight's message is called Take the Steps. And this message derived from a podcast. No, it was a video actually that I watched of Simon Sinek. Uh, he is a world-renowned uh, speaker, author in leadership, and he had five uh, steps in becoming successful. And so tonight, we're just taking what he said in his video and turning it into a message. And so tonight's message is take the steps and uh, glad that you're here with us at Crossroads. For most of you, you're like, yeah, I've heard my parents listen to that crap. But anyway, um, our series is called Step by Step. And the reason that we brought that song in is because I didn't have any money this year to do Valentine's for my wife. So I, uh, I made a video with her favorite group. Anyway, um, the thing about that song is that song was one of those things that, that I really think just that, that, that little part, step by step, is something that we all need to take hold of. Um, there's that part of us that we all desire to have the best. We all want to achieve the most. But the thing is, is it doesn't happen instantly. It's something that you have to take the steps to get there. And that's what we're going to be doing for the next five weeks after tonight. We're going to be looking at the five steps that we need to take to become the successful Christian God has called us to be. And the thing is, is when we talk about success, we all have in our mind what success is. So for the next 32 seconds, I want you to think about what you would define as success and then we will get started. I can't count to 32, so I'm just going to guess in a minute. There we go. Is that close to 32? Sure. Give it a couple more for slow people like me. All right, so I need volunteers. Somebody tell me what your idea of success is. Yes. Winning. Winning what? Just, <laughs> just, just winning. winning. Thumb wrestling, success. All right. Yes, sir. Making it to the professionals. Making it to the professionals. Okay. Receiving a trophy. Receiving a trophy. Okay. True happiness. True happiness. <laughs> yes, sir. Making money. How much money? A lot. A lot. Okay. That's a parcel of land. So I need, I need a defining number. How much would it take to make you happy for the rest of your life? Let's do that. <laughs> yeah. Double what Bill yeah, you couldn't spend all Bill Gates' money in your life. So anyway. Someone else. I'd like to hear from a college lady. What you got? As soon as you said that I was thinking my college diploma would be very successful. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. What about some of our adults over here and over there? Still trying to figure 
out. Still trying to figure it out. Uh, Still trying to get there. Yeah. But I mean, we have we have an idea of success, and the thing is, success to people. There's a lot of different ideas of what success is. In my life, when I was your age, there's that old person phrase. But when I was a teenager, and if I need to stop for y'all, just let me know. But when I was a teenager, um, my thought of success, if I was going to be a successful person, it was going to be someone that was able every time they went to the gas station to fill their car up with gas and not have to put five dollars in. Y'all don't know what five dollars used to mean to us. Five dollars, we drive for a week. I mean, now $5 won't even turn it on, you know, right? So that was my idea of success. As I got older, I had different ideas of what success is, but we all shared the thoughts that we want to be successful. There's not a person alive that when they get to the age where they can think for themselves, they think, man, I hope I'm a failure. I can't wait to be a loser. Nobody wants that. We all want to succeed. There's not a good parent. There might be some weird parents, but there's not a parent alive that when they held their baby the first time, they go, man, I hope you fail at everything you try. (laughs) Who's a loser? Who's a loser? No, we didn't do that. We're like, ah. You know, my hope for my son wasn't to be the richest person in the world. I just wanted him to to have a desire to do more, to be better than he can imagine, to strive for excellence in everything he does. And that's something that that I think all of us would say we want to be the best at something, but that doesn't just happen. Uh, I've got several friends that are successful business people, yet many of them had failures along the way. I've got a very close friend that was a professional athlete for many years, and he would tell you, you know what, I failed more. He said I was a professional baseball player. He said I struck out a lot. He said my batting average was below 500, so I technically failed even though in the world's eyes I succeeded. Our ideas of success are huge, and it's something that we need to strive for, but at the same time, we've got to realize there's not a golden elevator to get you there. You've got to take the steps to get there, whatever your idea of success is, whether it's finishing school, whether it's going to college, where it's getting the the career that you've always desired. We spoke about this for the last three days with the different athletic groups at, at the high school. And when I asked the question, you know, there was one that said, I want a scholarship. There was one that said, I want I want, I want uh, opportunities. There was one that said, I want a pair of, uh, uh, no, he said, I want a, um, oh, a truck that will crank. And I was like, yeah, I've been in your shoes, man. I'm, I'm, I'm there. I understand that. <laughs> I talked with the middle school this morning, and when I was speaking with them, I said, what do you want? And this one girl, she says, I'd like to have an iPhone. I was like, I get you. What do you want? Oh, money. That was the one that went out the most. Oh, money. And I said, what are you going to do with it? Buy stuff. What kind of stuff? Stuff. And then we went into the discussion of, you know, what, how many of y'all got something for Christmas? And everybody raised a hand. How many of you know where it all is? Uh, well, I mean, we buy stuff, but that, we find out that that wasn't the success that we're looking for. That's not the happiness that truly is going to drive us. I had one kid say, I want a pair of Yeezys. <laughs> he said, you know what Yeezys are? And I said, no. <laughs> I know they're shoes, but I'm just ridiculous to pay that kind of money for something you're going to step in dog poop. That's crazy. So anyway, uh, but our ideas of success are great, and they're all different. We all have different versions of what success is, but there's one thing that we have in common is that we have to take the steps to get there. And tonight, like I said, is going to be a little different. It's going to be the least amount of Bible for a Bible study, but I do want you to take your Bibles and turn to, uh, I was about to say January. That's not even right. <laughs> turn to Jeremiah chapter 29. Turn to January, uh, chapter Pete's the verse lasagna. Hallelujah. 
Jeremiah 29, 11. This is a verse that we use a great deal in youth ministry because the message behind it is something that we strive and we desire for all of our students to hear, all of our adults to hear, something that they would hold close to their heart to understand that there is a future out there for them. The future found in Christ is greater than any future imaginable. So, if someone would read that for us, please. For I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's God knows the plans He has for us. And I want you to understand that if God has plans for you, that would be a successful plan because God did not create anything that is a failure. We have chosen many times to make what He's given us into failures, but what He creates is a beautiful thing. And as we're looking at what success is, how does that measure up on the God scale? Is God part of our version of success? You know, to, to achieve, to, to get a scholarship. Well, where does God fit in that? To, to have the career we want, where does God fit in that? To have the, the family that we've always dreamt of, to, to buy the white picket fence, to have that dream. And we all have some kind of spark that drives us. And the question is, is, is God the one that's caused that spark? Or is it based off what someone else has seen? Because if we listen to what the world says, the world is going to tell you that you can't achieve your dreams. If we listen to what the world says, the world's going to try to tell you what your dream should be. But inside each one of us, there's a spark. And for a, for a lot of us, we talked about this, about how big is your dream. You know, if your dream is big enough for you to, to, to do it, it's not that big of a dream. A dream is something that you know you can't achieve. But with the help of others, you can. And so what we're going to do tonight, I'm going to give you five quick points on how to have a successful life. And this is a thing that I watched as a guy, uh, and I'm going to have to read his name because I never can say it right. Simon Sirik. Simon Sirik, uh, Sinek, excuse me. Uh, he is a leading uh, person in leadership, and he's written numerous books about leadership. And as I'm looking through, that's one of the things that as a youth pastor I'm constantly doing is looking for someone that would be a leader within the youth group. We have great leaders, but we always need more leaders. And finding that leader is more than just someone that could be the popular one that everyone would gravitate to. It's one that takes their relationship with Christ seriously. It's one that understands the importance of the five, and they do everything they can to be a part of that five. It's the one that's doing more than just church here. They're doing church outside too. And so that's what I'm constantly doing is who would be that next leader? And so I'm constantly reading over things about what can I do to encourage leadership. And when I read this, it stopped me in my tracks. And so what I'm going to give you is a paraphrased version of what Simon said, his five steps to success is. Now, before we get started, I just have to ask, do any of you not want to be successful? All right, so why don't we take some steps? Our first step is you've got to find that dream. And once you find that dream, you've got to go after that dream with all you've got. You've, you've heard of the Michael Jordan story about how he was cut from his, one of the school teams that he played for, about how he missed this many shots, but he's considered to be the greatest ever was. Uh, the different people that have done amazing things. I was reading something about Chuck Yeager today. How many of y'all know who Chuck Yeager is? Tell me something about him. Kind of? Yeah. He broke the sound barrier. Y'all know what the sound barrier is? 
That is, that, there's a sonic boom that happens when you go over, it's like 736 miles per hour based on where you are at sea level. And they were all, uh, every person that had jets in the world, they were getting together th- saying that there's no way to penetrate that sound barrier because when you get to that, that speed, there is a wave of air that will just crush you. And so people were trying to do it. And when they would get to about 690 miles per hour, it would start shaking so violently. And there, it's a weird thing in, in aerodynamics and engineering and physics and all that stuff. But in airplanes, if you get to a certain speed, of course, there's more pressure on top of the wing than there is under the wing because of the way that it's curved. But you get to that certain speed, it pushes you so hard into a nosedive. And there were all these different people that were dying trying to accomplish it. The, the, there was a, a guy from England, and the, the English government was behind him, and they said, this is going to be the one that does it. He got up to 994 miles per hour. And when he did that, they said that he just took a nosedive and it, it was gone. And so everyone had decided, we're not going to do anything about this anymore. We realize it's impossible to do. And then Chuck Yeager says, no, I want to give it one more shot. And so two days before the testing, he was riding a horse and got thrown off of it and broke his ribs. And he, he didn't tell anyone about it because he didn't want to slow down the progress that they had been making. And so there was a four-turbine jet engine, something or another, that went up 22,000 feet. And underneath it was this little bitty rocket that Chuck Yeager was going to be flying. And as he's in that rocket, it drops from this plane, and the the rocket engine engages, and it takes off, and it quickly climbs to 44,000 feet. And when he got to 44,000 feet, he started going, and everything was going great. But as he started approaching that 700 number, as he started getting closer and closer to that, he started noticing that he was having trouble controlling the jet. There was so much turbulence in it. There's just a big thing of air, and the pressure that it was put on, it was just shaking him everywhere. And as he's sitting there fighting it, fighting it, fighting it, he realized that there's more going on than just that. As he got to the 690 plus, he started realizing that he was getting nauseous. And the G-forces that were going on were so strong, it was pushing him back in this jet. And he couldn't, he, he honestly, he said, I honestly thought I was about to die. And he said, all of a sudden, something happened. Much louder than that. It was a boom, a sonic boom. And I don't know if you've ever heard that. If you've ever been sitting in your house and there's a boom and it shakes your walls, you're like, whoa, what was that? Sometimes jets will fly around and you'll hear it happen and it will shake the ground. It is an amazing thing. You go to a certain speed, you break that sound barrier. And he did. And he said, as soon as that happened, there was total silence. And he said, I literally thought I had died. He said, and then all of a sudden it was like I was flying on glass. And he got up to like 748 miles per hour and finally said, well, I've proven a point, and he came back down. There was a dream that he had. And even though everyone else said, there's no way you should try to achieve that dream, he went for his dream. There was a spark inside of him. My father met him when my dad was in the Air Force, and my father had the opportunity to meet him. I said, what was it like? He said, he's just a down-to-earth guy. He was just country. We were sitting there eating. And I was like, you were, you were eating with Chuck Yeager? Yeah, yeah, we were just sitting there eating, just talking. He's just a normal guy. He said, but when he left uh, Texas, he flew from Texas to Washington, D.C., and he made it in about 38 minutes because his jet was really fast. And just the, there was something in Chuck Yeager that says, no, you know what? I've got a spark, and I'm going to do whatever I can to achieve it. Guys, you've got to have a dream. There's got to be something that makes you look for tomorrow with anticipation. 
Now, there are times that we look towards tomorrow with dread. Maybe we've got a test coming up. Maybe there's sickness going on in our family. Maybe there's a funeral that we have to go to. There is dread that's going to come our way. But with that dread, a lot of times we're going to find there's a ray of sunshine somewhere around the corner. And as we look for that sunshine, that's something that's going to drive us to get there. Something that's going to make us want to get there. And there's one rule that I want you to follow as you go to achieve your dream. You should go after your dream with all that you have, but you should never try to stop someone else from going for their dream. And that's something I want you to keep in mind. You should achieve your dream at all costs except for the expense of someone else. We see many, many times throughout the world that there are people that make huge successful things in their life, yet they leave behind uh, just a bunch of people in their wake because they've stepped on the hearts of people, they've crushed people to achieve what their goal is. And in doing that, you're not really becoming a successful person. You're becoming the person that everyone else can't stand to be around because you've hurt people to achieve what you want. And that's one of the saddest things in the world because it starts even at young ages. It starts even when we're young. Go for your dream. Don't let people tell you it's crazy. Many of you wouldn't share what your true dream is because you think it's so ridiculous. I I won't share with you what my true dream dream is because it's so crazy. It's just stupid. But you know what? It's still something that I search for every day. So go for your dream. Our next step that we're going to be taking starts back in the 18th century. And in the 18th century, I'm going to have to read the name of this disease because, you know, I can't say stuff good. Uh, Purpal fever. There was this thing called Purpal fever, and I think that's pretty close to the way it's it's said. But it was called the, the Black Death Childbed. Is that right? Yes, the Black Death of Childbed. And what was going on was this was in the 18th century, and there were women, of course, they, this, was, this started out in Europe and it eventually got to the United States. But as it started out in Europe, there were women, of course, having babies, and the doctors would go in and they would deliver the babies, and within 48 hours, the women were starting to die. And it wasn't just a, a case happened here and a case happened here. It was going Europe, throughout Europe, it was happening. They said there were some hospitals that were upwards of 70% of the women that were giving birth to children in 48 hours were dying. Now, you got to understand, during this time, this was a great time of knowledge, a great time of wisdom. There were people making discoveries. There was all kind of medicines that were being invented. So there were brilliant people there. And a lot of times in the midst of their brilliance, they put away the common sense things because their minds were so wrapped up in the science of life. Their minds were so wrapped up in their achievements that they didn't pay attention to the simple things that they should have been doing. And there was one doctor, his name was Dr. Oswald Wendell Holmes. And Dr. Holmes was the only one to understand exactly what was going on. And so he went to a group of doctors and he says, I know exactly why these women are dying. And he says, every morning, you as a group of doctors, you're getting together and you're going to autopsy and you're working on these women that have passed away over the past several months to try to find out exactly what's going on. You're having to examine the body inside and out. And you're doing that all morning. And then as soon as you get finished with that, that afternoon, you're going to deliver babies. And you're forgetting something that we all learned at the very first of medical school. Wash your hands and sterilize your utensils 
He said, that's why all these women are dying. And all of these brilliant doctors looked at him and said, you are an idiot. That's the dumbest thing we've ever heard. And for 30 years, this thing was going on in Europe and in the United States. And after 30 years, there was finally one doctor that said, you know, I think I know what the problem is. We haven't been washing our hands and sterilizing our instruments. And as soon as they, all the doctors got together and came to that conclusion that uh, Dr. Holmes had said 30 years prior, it stopped happening. And the thing I want you to hear in this, this second step that we need to take is sometimes you're the one to blame. Here are these doctors that are smarter than anyone could imagine, yet because of their choices, things were happening that no one else could control. Sometimes we're at fault, and we don't live in that society anymore. We live in a culture that wants to blame everything on everyone else. If you turn on the presidential speech to the United States, this side blames that side, that side blames this side, and the biggest problem is this side. It's not one against the other, it's us. You, you turn on the news and you hear about these giant corporations that are going belly up and they've got the most brilliant minds working for them, yet they forget some of the most simple principles and in their pride and in their haughtiness, they think they've got it all figured out and before long, these multi-billion dollar companies are bankrupt. And the first thing they do is point the finger at someone else and say, well, if they would have, but they didn't and it's because of them. Sometimes we're the one to blame. And I'll be honest with you, that's one of the hardest pills to swallow. My father lost his eyesight. He had macular degeneration. And uh, it, it came on quick with him. I, I don't know exactly how long it takes to get something like that, but it hit my father pretty quick. And I can remember talking to him after he had gone to the Eye Foundation to find out what's going on. They said, you have macular degeneration. I don't know if it was the wet or the dry, but whichever one it was, they couldn't cure it. They could stop it from progressing anymore, but it already got into the place where if he wanted to see something, he had to hold it up like this. And so when he got to that place, I remember coming home and I was just sitting with him and go, Pappy, I'm so sorry. I said, I can't imagine what it must be like. He said, well, I've seen pretty much everything I want to see. He said, I, I've shook hands with a bunch of presidents. I've driven over five million miles in my big truck. He said, I've even been to Hawaii. He had all these stories that he would tell of these things that he saw. He said, but son, you know what I can't get over? I said, what's that, daddy? He said, doctor said I could have done this to myself. And I said, how? He said, because I used to smoke. And he said, that could have been a contributing factor in what's going on with my eyes. He said, I just can't get over the fact that it could be my fault. And to the day my father passed away, he would say things like that. I just can't believe I've done this to myself. And that's one of the hardest things for us to swallow is the fact that sometimes some of the bigger issues that we face in our life are based on decisions that we've made in our past. Our second step is sometimes you've got to face the fact that you might be the one to blame. Our third step, the United States Navy, the, the SEALs in the Navy, um, I love watching things about military. I mean, you could probably talk for hours. I love watching anything about military. I'm fascinated. I, I'm, I'm, 
I guess, sad at myself that I didn't venture into military because I've always been interested in it, but I'm a chicken, so I didn't do it. Uh, but the Navy SEALs are, are considered to be the most elite warriors in today's military in some people's minds. And so the, the question was asked to one of the Navy SEALs. They said, let me ask you a question. What, it, what kind of person makes it through BUD training? And BUD is the SEAL training. And the guy looks at the, the reporter and says, well... I can't tell you exactly what kind of person is going to make it, but I can tell you who won't make it. And the reporter says, okay, and he gets his pen and pad out, and he says, the person that walks in here with all the big muscles, and they've got the schmedium shirts on. He didn't say that. I just like saying that. He said, the, the person comes in with all these muscles and struts around and wants to try to prove to somebody how tough he is. He said, that person never makes it. He said, the person that's got all the tattoos and wants to explain to you how tough he was when he was getting these tattoos. He said, that person very seldom makes it. He said, matter of fact, I've never met one that made it. He said, the person that has leadership ability, but wants you to understand that they feel that they are a leader. And when it comes time to do what you're supposed to do, they assign other people to do the work, yet they never get their hands dirty. He said, that person never makes it. And the reporter's just writing all this stuff down. He said, the guy that is the superstar high school athlete, that is the, the D1 prospect across the boards, and everyone looks at him, yet he's never physically had a challenge to his core. He's just been gifted enough to make it around throughout high school. And he said, he walks in here thinking, because I skated through all this, I'll skate through this. He said, that person never makes it. And the guy says, okay, you've shown me all these different people who don't make it. Who is the person that's going to make it? He said, it's the craziest thing. Sometimes it's the skinniest, scrawniest person you could imagine. They look like they can't even hold up their gear. They're so small. He said, sometimes it's that guy that's sitting there and he's shivering. And it's not because he's cold. It's because he is so afraid of what's coming up. He said, that person, that person's the kind of person that's going to make it. Because that person, in the midst of their fear, in the midst of their size, it's not based on their size, it's not based on whether they're afraid or not, it's based on something deep within them that gives them a desire to do more than they could ever imagine. He said, but that person, even more so than this, is the person that knows when all else fails, and I don't feel like I can go on. I've got to dig down deep and take care of the person to the right of me and to the left of me. Because my dream of finishing and being the seal I should be, I can't do it by myself. I've got to have some help with me. And he said, but I also have to be willing to help someone. So our next step, of course, is being willing to help someone. That's taking us in the direction of success. And being willing to help someone is a beautiful thing, but I don't know about you, but there are times that I don't really want people to help me because I want to pretend that I've got my life's great, right? Um, but my life's in shambles a lot. And we have to have people that we can ask for help, but it's not easy for us to ask for help. It's not easy. When, when I was younger, I used to be really, really strong. And I can remember we would do landscaping. And there was one summer we planted over 500 giant trees throughout Clanton. And we would, they would pull up and there was a guy on a tractor and he'd dig three little holes and I'd come in with a shovel and dig out the holes and make them big. And I would pick up these trees that were 250 pounds apiece and I would pick them up and set them in the hole, pull the burlap from around them, cover them up, and go on to the next one. And we did over 500 of those and I planted probably 400 of the 500. And I can remember doing it, and the guy that was on the tractor kept leaning back going, hey, get Julian to help you. I said, man, Julian's too little. He can't help. He just gets in the way. 
And I just kept working and kept working and kept working. And I developed some really bad back issues because of that. We hired an associate pastor here at West End years ago. And they were moving into our old pastorium or the parsonage or the house that the church owns, whatever you want to call it. And the man's wife, she had a piano. And there were three men on that end of the piano, and I'm on this end. And they said, hang on, I hope you. I said, now y'all just come on. And I picked up one end of a piano, and I turned. And my back was done. They were offering help, yet I wasn't willing to take it because there was so much of me that says, I can do this by myself. But guys, there's a journey that we're on that we can't make by ourselves. And we've got to be willing not just to take help, but to ask for help as well. And one of the things that you're going to find is if you are willing to ask for help, there are so many people that love you that are going to drop whatever's going on so they can help. But the person that, that's going to succeed is one that's willing to stop what they're doing to help someone else. That would be our next step. Our fourth step is simply called learn to speak last. How many of you have ever heard of Nelson Mandela? couple of you? Okay. Our adults. All right. Nelson Mandela is considered in, in the world to be one of the greatest leaders has ever been. Now, if you go back and you study South African history and you study apartheid and all that, you'll, you'll get a better understanding of what Nelson Mandela went through and all. But uh, an interviewer was talking to him and says, you're considered to be one of the greatest leaders that there's ever been. And I just want to get an understanding from you. How did you learn how to lead? He says, well, what many people don't know is my father was the leader of a tribe. He was the head honcho of a tribe. He was the king of this tribe. And he said every time there were tribal meetings, the different tribe kings would get together and meet. And he said, I would go to those meetings with my father every time. And he said, from the time I was old enough to walk, I would make sure I was at those meetings. And he said, as we would go to those meetings, there were two things that I always remember. He said, every time we would get together, all the tribal leaders would sit in a circle. And the guy's writing stuff, and he goes, sit in a circle? Why is that important? He says, oh, I don't know. I just remember that. He said, but the other thing I remember, my father was always the last one to speak. And he went on to explain the importance of that. He said, if you are willing to be the last one to speak, then you have heard what everyone else has to say. If you are willing to be the last one to speak, not only did you get to hear what everyone else said, you gave them the, the thought that they have been heard. Because a lot of times as someone's having conversations, someone else blurts in and all that person is doing is I just want to get my point across, yet I can't seem to because everyone else is chiming in. Yet if my father would say, I would be the last to speak, so I would, they would believe that I have heard what they said. And of course, I would have heard what they said because I would be the last to speak. He said not only would, would, I, would they know that everyone had heard them, they would also feel that they had contributed to the meeting. And he said, and everyone's voice needs to be heard when you have a group of kings together. Not one was greater than the other. They all were kings. He said, so I would sit there and I would watch my father. My father would not say anything. He said, when they were coming around and they're going to different ones, you would see different kings that are nodding their head or they're shaking their head. And my father would just sit there stoic. He wouldn't say anything. He wouldn't make any movements because he wanted to genuinely listen to everything you have to say. And he wanted to genuinely be that person to speak last. He said, throughout my life, I've heard people say that you need to be sure to listen. He said, and you do, but you also need to be willing to speak last. Because in doing that, not only are you helping them out by giving them the satisfaction of them having their voice heard, but you're also getting the opportunity to not just listen to everything they have to say, but to form your opinion differently 
just in case you were wrong. He said, there were many times my father would sit there and in the midst of that meeting, he would have in his mind what he was wanting to say. But once he heard from everyone else, a lot of times he wouldn't say what was truly in his heart because he knew it could cause a war. He knew it could divide tribes. He knew it could cause problems. And you as teenagers, there are times that if you would be the one willing to sit there and not say anything until the last, you might could stop people from having bad relationships. You might could stop people from getting into fights. You might could lead somebody to Christ because in listening to them, you might hear that what they truly need is something that God's given me and I can share with them. Being willing to, to speak last is important, but it also guarantees that you get to speak your mind. So that's a step that helps lead us in success because everyone else has their opinion. Then we might have a chance to share what God has put on our heart, and that might help someone else. And our fifth and final step, there's a former political leader. He was called an undersecretary of state. I don't even know what that position is. But he had been invited to, to Washington, D.C. to speak to a group of politicians. And as he gets to the airport, there's a limousine sitting there, and they've got a sign for him, and it's got his name on it, and he, he shows them his, his credentials or whatever. And they, they get him in the limousine. They carry him to the, air, uh, to the uh, hotel. And as soon as he gets to the hotel, he's already been checked in. So they walk him straight to the eighth floor. They take him to the eighth floor. They put him in his room says, we'll be back in the morning to come pick you up for your uh, speaking engagement. He says, great. So he gets up about 6 o'clock the next morning, goes downstairs to get the continental breakfast because you can't go wrong with a free breakfast. So he goes down and gets that free breakfast. And as he's walking down, these men come up and they say, we are ready whenever you are. He said, well, let me get some coffee and I'll, I'll, we'll go. So he got coffee and a bagel. And on the right, he's in this limousine. And everybody is taking care of everything that you can imagine for him. And so he's got all that going on. When he gets to the conference center where he's going to speak, as soon as the limousine pulls out, someone walks over, opens up the door, and says, it's so good to have you with us. As he walked towards the hotel, there were men that opened up the door and said, please, this way. And they directed him exactly where he needed to go. As he's getting prepared, uh, looking over his notes one final time, a lady walks up with this cup of coffee and the most beautiful ceramic mug, and she hands it to him. She says, we are so honored that you're here with us today. And he took that cup of coffee and he drank it and then he spoke. Well, the second year that he's going to give this speech, he's standing before the whole group and he's got his cup of coffee and it's in a styrofoam cup. And he looks at the styrofoam cup in front of about 8,000 people and he goes, <laughs> he just starts laughing. And so everyone's just kind of looking at him like, oh, this guy's lost it. He's gone crazy. He says, uh, i got to share something with you. And he shared that story I just did. He said, everything was taken care of. He said, but you know what I've come to realize? I deserve a styrofoam cup. He said, all the things they were doing for me, all the kind things they were saying to me, really didn't have anything to do with me. It was my position. And as you grow in life, as you get to different statuses in the world's eye, as you get to different levels of success, you're going to find that people treat you differently. And unfortunately, that's part of life. One of my favorite stories is to listen to pastors that have done this. And uh, Ed Newton's one of my favorite pastors to listen to. And I had heard someone doing this years ago, but he recently did this at his church in San Antonio. He dressed up like a homeless person. Now, in San Antonio, at their church, at Christ City Church, I think it's what it's called, Nope Community, some community Bible Church. At his church, they have five services on the weekend. 
They do one on Saturday, they do four on Sunday, and he preaches every one of them. And so he goes in on Saturday, and as you're driving under their campus, their campus is huge. Uh, we've got 26 acres on our campus, but theirs is much bigger than this. It's, it's a mega church. And so he's sitting up at the corner of one of the entrances. He said, there's all these fancy bushes around, and I'm just sitting there, just a homeless guy. And he said, the first car pulls in, and they get about 12 feet in front of him, and they lock down their brakes, and they back the car up. And they start talking to him, go, hey, uh, well, what, what you doing? He said, I'm just, I'm just here, man. And they said, well, can, you want to come with us and go get, go get a donut and some coffee? He was like, no. Nah. And he turned around and walked back in the woods. And as soon as that car went off, he came back out, and he did this every service. He did it five services. And I watched the last service online. And as he finished the last service, he's sitting in the church because someone had said, hey, I just want you to go sit with me and just sit through this message. This preacher, Ed Newton, he's really good. I think you'll like him. And when Ed's telling the story, everyone just bursts into laughter because he's sitting there, and she's bragging on him. And he's just sitting there, just nasty, stinks. Looks, I mean, just looks rough. And it comes time for Ed Newton to come out on stage, and the praise and worship stopped, and, and uh, they, they set up the stuff that needed to be set up on the stage, and nothing happened. And all of a sudden, he just stood up, and he starts walking down to the front. And the lady's going, wait, 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 wait. And there are other people that are watching him, and there are security guards going, well, what do we do? And he walked to the front of the stage and just stood there and looked for a second. And then he turned to the left, and he walked up on the stage. And he got up there, and folks are starting to freak out. They're all starting to freak out. And you see security people starting to make their way to the front. And then you see one security person walk by and just kind of whisper something in their ears. And so they all back off because he had told his team what he was going to be doing. And he gets up in front of the whole church, and he says, uh, a lot of y'all talk to me today, but you don't really know who I am. And he pulled off his ma not his mask, he pulled off the makeup, the hat, the ratty clothes. And there stands the pastor of one of the largest churches in America. And he said, I did this because I didn't believe that there were people in this world that would look on someone as sorry as I was, as sorry as I appeared to be, and treat me the way that you would treat a pastor of a church this size. He said, you know what I found out? There's a group of people here that loved me in spite of me. And he stood there and just started crying. And that's one of the things that, that we've come to understand is that there are people that genuinely love regardless of what the circumstances are. But there is a world out there that wants to pat you on the back or give you accolades because of your position. And the thing I want you to understand is that you deserve a styrofoam cup just like I do. A lesson in humility. Our fifth lesson, our fifth step would be to stay humble and gracious. As you grow, as God blesses you and you flourish in your businesses, God's going to bless you with so much. And people are going to bless you with things. Um, several, several years ago, I don't know how long ago it's been now, but a man walked up to me at church. He said, hey, I got something for you. And he put an envelope in my hand. And I was like, okay, uh, who do I need to give it to? He said, you can give it to your wife if you want to. He said, but I gave it to you. And I opened it up. It was tickets to a football game in Knoxville. I'm a Tennessee fan. It's kind of a big deal because I can't afford to go up there. And Jessica and I had the opportunity to go watch Tennessee and Georgia play, and Tennessee won. That's how long ago it's been. It was a really long time ago. <laughs> but it was amazing. 
And I can remember walking away from this man. I hugged him and I kissed him on the cheek. He was like, you better stop. I'm going to knock you out. Uh, he's a good old boy. So I was just like, man, I can't believe somebody do something like this for me. He said, oh, but you do so much for our kids. And that man loves me with all of his heart. I know he does. But as soon as I heard that, as, as I'm reading through and listening to this guy talk, I was like, he gave it to a position, maybe. Or did he give it to me personally? And when I got that gift, my first thought was, there's no way I can repay you. But I just want to tell you, thank you. And every time I see that man, I walk up and hug him. And he's got a big old belly like me, so it's really awkward. <laughs> yeah, that's about it, right? <sighs> that's about it. But I love that man so much. And it's not because of what he gave me. It's because he loved me. You're going to be blessed with things. Stay humble. Stay humble. Because the last thing anyone wants is to be around somebody that brags about everything. I detest being around folks that brag about everything. And I try my best not to be one of those people. I brag about y'all all the time. And I know there's a bunch of youth pastors in this county that hate me. I don't care. I think y'all are the greatest. But I try my best not to be that person. A very close friend of mine, it was probably one of the most intelligent people I've known. But he's quick to tell you how smart he was. A good friend of mine that was probably one of the toughest people I've ever known, but he was quick to tell you how tough he was. And I remember talking to my father years ago, and he said, Son, somebody that's smart, somebody that's tough, somebody that's good, they don't have to tell you they are. You're going to see it in them because they're going to be humble. Stay humble. Find that spark. Go after your dream. Realize that sometimes the reason you've not achieved that dream yet is your own fault. Once you get to that place, and I've just lost my mind because, here we go, take care of each other. Every day there's somebody that needs a smile. Every day there's somebody that needs a hug. When Miss Michelle first started working here, it freaked me out so bad because she smiles a lot. And I don't. This is pretty much me in a happy mood or a sad mood. I'm just... And I would walk in and she'd go, Good morning, Brother Kenny! And I would look down at her and go, Hey... Are you not feeling well today? And her voice gets really high. I'm like, no, I feel fine. Well, why aren't you smiling? I said, why should I? And she was like, <laughs> scared her to death. I think for a long time she was like, Kenny is a psychopath and he's going to come downstairs and stab me. <laughs> find that thing. Find that person that needs some smiles, that needs a hug, that needs a high five, that needs... There, man, there was this blue-haired woman that walked up to me Sunday morning. Man, she just walked up. She said, hey, Brother Kenny. I said, well, hey, how are you? And she said, I'm good. You look like you need a hug. I said, I do. What she didn't know is for the past month, my blood sugar has been ridiculous. Uh, I was, my blood sugar was close to 400 Sunday morning, which is not good, which is really, really bad. And it took all I could do to get here to church. But I was like, well, I missed last week because my blood sugar was over 500. So I'm going to be at church. But I felt horrible. And she just said, you look like you need a hug. And I promise you, I'm not exaggerating. As soon as that old lady let go of me, I just felt better. Sometimes people just need a touch of love from you. Remember to be the last one to speak. You never know what's going on in someone's life until they're able to share their whole story. Be sure to be willing to listen, but also be willing to hold your tongue until it's time for you to say something. And then last, of course, remember to be humble. 
in the next five weeks, we're going to take bits and pieces of this, but we're going to build what it means, the staircase to become a successful Christian. Again, I don't think any of us want to fail at anything, but the thing we should probably strive for the most is to be the best Christian we can be. And for the next five weeks, that's where we're going to be going, is becoming a successful Christian God has created us to be. So let's pray. God, thank you for tonight. Thank you for the opportunity just to hang. Thanks for being a part of today's podcast. We would love to hear from you. Reach out to us through our social media. Uh, go to KennyCrossroads.com and you can find links to all my social media. Or, hey, just stop by and send me sometime. West End Baptist Church in Clanton, Alabama. Or you can come on a Wednesday night to Crossroads. Love for you to come be a part of what God's doing here. And again, thank you for being a part of Crossroads.